the good news of the gospel and one of the benefits of the gospel is that God listens to our verbs and nouns. When we pray, God listens to our adverbs. He stoops down and he listens to our groans and our tears and our moans. We have a Father in heaven who listens to his children when they cry out to him. And he's not too busy looking at his iPhone when his children want his attention. Right, parents? God listens to our moans and groans, our verbs and adverbs. And that truth is all over the Bible. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 8.15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Commenting on Romans 8.15, Tim Chester says this, By the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The word translated cry is a strong word. It's not a gentle or affectionate word to be softly spoken. It's a cry for help. That's what the Abba Father cry is, a desperate cry for help that makes a father come running. Every groan becomes an invitation to whisper, Father. Every groan you utter, from the sigh you make getting out of a chair to the aching void of bereavement, is an invitation to enjoy the hope of the Spirit. And Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple teaches us the same thing that Romans 8.15 teaches us, that every groan becomes an invitation to whisper, Father. Every groan that we make in these failing bodies of ours becomes an opportunity to own up to our weaknesses to own up to our dependency, and to cry out to our Heavenly Father. From getting out of a chair and feeling that ache, and who can't relate to that? All the way to, I was just brushing my teeth and somehow I threw my back out. And who can't relate to that? All the way to, I am grieving the loss of a loved one. Every groan and ache and tear becomes an opportunity to pour our hearts out to our Heavenly Father. All of our aches and pains that we experience in this broken and damaged world become opportunities to whisper, Father, help, I need you. And that's what we see Solomon do in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles in the Old Testament to 1 Kings chapter 8. We're still in the middle of the dedication ceremony for the temple. It took Solomon seven years to finish building the temple, and it's probably going to take seven years for us to get out of 1 Kings chapter 8. So hang on. We'll get there one of these days. In 1 Kings 8, we'll see Solomon pray and pour his heart out to Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. So 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, hear the word of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath 
keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it to this day. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So Solomon is outside in the main temple courtyard, standing on or near the large altar where everybody could see him. And he raises his hands and he prays to the Lord. And Solomon begins his prayer with one of the most heartwarming truths about Jesus that we see in verse 23, which says this, There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. Solomon realizes how staggering Yahweh is, the Lord. There is no God like him. Yahweh actually stoops down to sinners. Think about that. He is high and lifted up, infinitely glorious, all-knowing, all-seeing, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-wise, and he humbles himself and comes down to us because he wants to have a relationship with his people. He wants to have a relationship with you. It's amazing. Matthew Barrett says this. He says, There is none greater than this God, not because he is merely a greater version of ourselves, but because he is nothing like ourselves. Only a creator, not to be confused with the creature, is capable of stooping down to redeem those who have marred his image. Our situation would surely have been helpless, exclaims John Calvin, had the very majesty of God not descended to us, since it was not in our, our power to ascend to him. There is no God like the triune God that we love and serve. There is no God like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is not just a better version of us. He is nothing like us. He is infinitely glorious and holy and wise and all-powerful and that's where we have to start when we think about God. Theology must start with God. We start with Him and who He is and His character. And then and only then do we descend and come down to where we are. And that's what Solomon does here. He starts with Yahweh and who He is. And he affirms that the Lord is Unique. And that's what the word holy means. We were just singing it. Holy, holy, holy. We could have been singing unique, unique, unique. Different, different, different. Because the word holy simply means to be set apart. To be different. To be unique. Yahweh, God, is holy. He is set apart from us. He is different from us. 
He is nothing like us. And when you can swallow that truth, and you, then you come down from those heights to where we are and who we are, and then it dawns on you that this God comes down to people like us, then worship happens. Then your awe is restored. God stoops down to us. He descends into the sewer to claim his people. He gets a shovel and he starts digging up corpses in the graveyard to claim his people. He has to come down to us because apart from him, we are helpless. We are dead. We are spiritually dead. And that's why it's called amazing grace. Because the infinitely glorious God of the universe stoops down to people like us. He stoops down to people who love pleasure. People who love sin. People who love drugs. People who love porn. People who love bitterness. People who love bad words. People who love everything that is opposite this God. He even stoops down to people who think they are pretty good. He even stoops down to self-righteous people who actually believe that they have their act together. He'll have all of us. Think about that. Jesus will have bad people and he'll have so-called good people. He'll take younger brothers who have been living off pig slop and he'll take the older brothers who huff and puff in self-righteousness when the younger brother comes home and his father throws a party for him. He'll have prostitutes and religious people. He'll have tax collectors and sinners and he'll have Pharisees. And that's why Solomon says in verse 23, there is no God like you. And there is no God like our God precisely because of what Solomon says in the rest of verse 23. He says, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Yahweh, that's God's covenant name in the Hebrew language. Yahweh, the Lord keeps covenant. He's, he's faithful. He keeps his word. As we saw last week, he makes and he keeps his promises. So what kind of God are we dealing with here? Because in Solomon's day, gods, the gods of the, of the world, other religions, they did not work this way. They did not work like this. This was unique to Israel. There were no gods like Yahweh in the ancient Near East. And so Solomon's neighbors would have overheard Solomon praying at the temple, and they would have asked him, who ever heard of a covenant-keeping God? And you mean to tell me, Solomon, that your God, what's his name, uh, Yahweh? You mean to tell me that Yahweh not only made a covenant with y'all, but he actually keeps it too? Seriously, Solomon, you mean this Yahweh God has actually bound himself by oath to you? 
I've never heard of any God like that. You mean to tell me that he makes and keeps promises? What kind of God are we dealing with here? Where would you find such an unusual, unique God in the ancient Near East? Not in Babylon, not in Egypt, not in Mesopotamia, only in Israel. And how do you respond to a God like this? How do you respond to a God who stoops down to save you and stoops down to redeem you? How do you respond to a God who makes and keeps his promises? You bow down. You bend your knees. That's how you respond. You bend at the knees in humble adoration and you simply say, there is no God like you. And that's worship. Those six words are worship. Those six words, there is no God like you. That is the heart of Christianity. There is no God like Jesus. There is no one so loving and so powerful and so merciful and so gentle and so kind and so wise. And if you are in Christ, Christian, This is your God. You belong to Jesus now. And there is no better place to be. You belong to Jesus. Now think about that. Jesus chose you. You. He chose you. I can hardly believe it. He chose you with all of your shortcomings and all of your sins and all of your issues and all of your quirks. Jesus will have You, and he never plans on letting you go, no matter how much of a stinker you may be. And you can be quite a stinker. But not only does Yahweh keep covenant, he shows steadfast love to his children. If you've been here for a while at Grace, you should know what's coming next in the sermon. That word there, the phrase steadfast love, should tip you off as to what I'm going to say next. It's translated as steadfast love. And it's the Hebrew word hesed, which means loyal covenant love. And I've told you many, many times before, and here I come again with it. I think the best way to translate this Hebrew word hesed is the way Sally Lloyd-Jones describes God's love in her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says that God loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the best translation of the Hebrew word hesed, in my opinion. God's love is steadfast. He shows us his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And we see it most clearly where? At the cross. Because Jesus lived and died and rose again so that we could enjoy God's steadfast love for eternity. God showed his steadfast love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans 5. That's why there is no God like our God. But Solomon then goes on in verses 24 to 26 to, through 26 to speak about Yahweh's faithfulness to his father, King David. The Lord spoke and made promises to David that in 2 Samuel 7, that he would not lack a man to sit on his throne. And we saw that last week as well. 
Solomon is now claiming these promises for himself. He is asking Yahweh to show himself faithful to David by securing his throne. Solomon realizes that he is is in this covenant stream that started way back with Abraham and has been flowing throughout the Old Testament. Solomon realizes, I'm in the middle of this covenant stream that started back with Abraham. And Solomon knows that Yahweh made promises to Abraham, and Solomon is now claiming them now as his own as the king. Solomon knows the promises given to Abraham include a people, that God would have a people, that God would protect them, and that they would have a place to live and dwell in security. And Solomon now wants to cash in these promises, if you will. He knows there is no God like Yahweh, and he's praying, and he's asking the Lord to come through on his promises. And so Solomon has taken these promises, and now he has turned them into prayers. Think about that. He's taken these promises that were given to his father David, these promises which really go all the way back to Abraham, and Solomon has now converted them into prayers. Solomon knows that God's promises are not like milk. There's no expiration date. They don't fade. They don't spoil. You don't ever open up one of God's promises and be like, whoo, this is past date. They don't get stale. You don't need mothballs to keep God's promises safe. So Solomon has taken these vintage promises and he has turned them into prayers for himself and his kingdom. And if we are Solomon's disciples, then we too will take God's promises and turn them into prayers. As I said last week, this book, the Bible, God's Word, is full of promises that you can rub into your pores. That's how faith stays alive. That's how your faith stays alive. Faith is a hungry business. Faith is hungry. Faith is like a teenager. I thought about this week. I thought, faith is like a teenager. And I have three, and well, one's moved on to 20. Two in my house now and three more to come. Faith is like a teenager. Faith needs to eat every few hours. Faith can eat a whole pizza of promises and still be hungry. Right, parents? Faith is like a teenager. It needs to be fed. Faith is a hungry business. And the Bible is full of promises that you can feed on by faith. So what's stopping you? There's a buffet right here. It's free. All you got to do is open it up. Ray Ortland says, God looks us right in the eye and claims that he can and will deliver on every single promise in the gospel. Do we believe him? Does Jesus rule over the mess called my life? Or in unsparing realism, must I despair? May I expect a new work of the Holy Spirit in my experience? Or is my past the measure of my future? If no one ever thinks we're crazy for the way we stick our necks out in trusting the promises of God, are we really living by faith? Are we really living by faith, Grace? 
If we're not staking our lives on these wild, crazy, out of this world, too good to be true, hard to believe promises. If no one thinks we're crazy for sticking our necks out and trusting God's promises, are we really living by faith? Let me ask you this morning, where in your life do you need a promise from God? What's happening in your life where you need a crazy promise and if you believed it, people would think you're crazy? What crazy promise do you need to believe this morning with the result that people will think that you are crazy? Find one in God's word and you can just Google, okay? I Google everything. If I have a question, I just go to Google. Google is my friend. Just Google God's promises, and more than likely, you'll land on a trustworthy website. You may need to do some work, but just type in Google God's promises, and it'll come up. Or look in a Bible if you have them. Find one in God's Word. Stick your neck out. Believe it, and then watch people scratch their heads and wonder if you have lost your mind. If no one ever thinks we're crazy for the way we stick our necks out in trusting the promises of God... Are we really living by faith? Something to wrestle with. Something to consider. And something to pray about. What crazy promise of God do you need to turn into prayer? With whatever's going on in your life right now, relationships, job, neighborhood, city, country, world, moon, I don't know, what's happening in the universe where you need a crazy promise from God that you need to turn into a prayer. Here are just a few promises that you can cling to and you can turn back into prayer. James 1.5, he promises to give us wisdom if we ask. Thank God, because we're all a bunch of idiots. And he says, I'll give you wisdom. 1 Corinthians 10.13, he promises to provide a way out of temptation. Wow. Think about that. John 10, 28 to 29. He promises that our salvation is secure no matter what. Whew. It's not riding on us, is it? The pressure's off. Hebrews 13, 5. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. So comforting. Philippians 1, 6. He promises to finish the good work he has begun in us. Hope. Hope, hope. Luke 12, 40, he promises to come back. Can not wait. These are promises that he has given to us to help us navigate this fallen world. And we can use these promises to express and to put into words our moans and groans. We can use these promises to express our pain through verbs and adverbs and express them directly to our Heavenly Father. So then, every groan becomes an invitation to whisper, Father, and so can every promise in God's Word. Every promise in God's Word becomes an opportunity to whisper, Father, Father, I need wisdom. Father, I'm being tempted. Father, I'm doubting my salvation. Father, I feel like you've left me all alone like an orphan. Father, I feel like I'm not growing spiritually. Father, come quickly and make all things new. 
Every promise in God's word becomes an opportunity to whisper, Father. And Solomon knows Yahweh's promises, and he has turned them into prayer. And Solomon understands Yahweh's character. Solomon knows Yahweh. He knows who Yahweh is. He knows the Lord. And so he has started with Yahweh, who he is, and now Solomon is working himself down to his situation. Solomon didn't start with himself and work his way up to try to understand God. He started his theology where all theology must start, and that's with God. And then and only then do we work ourselves down to us. We start with the revelation of who God says he is in his word, and then we form our theology. Our theology is a response to the revelation of God in his word. And if you come to our Church History for Dummies class that I'm going to be starting on June 9th, you can begin to understand how did the early church begin to form theology? How did doctrine form in a response to the revelation of God in his word? How did the doctrine of the Trinity shape? It's clearly in God's word. How do we shape and form those thoughts? How did the doctrine of the deity and the humanity of Christ form? How did we get the New Testament put together These are things we'll talk about in church history for dummies. And just in case you're wondering, it is taught by a dummy. So please, come. No shame. We're all idiots trying to learn. We start with the revelation of who God is, who he says he is in his word, and then we form and shape our theology and our doctrine. And that's what Solomon will do now. When Solomon descends the heights of Yahweh's glory, he lands in the land of sinful, broken, damaged humanity. And that will shape his prayer throughout the rest of the chapter. So look at now at verse 27 in 1 Kings chapter 8. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And so here we see the immensity of God and how grand and expansive he is and how even the universe cannot contain him. And then that's coupled with this intimate relationship that we can have with this God, which the heavens and the universe cannot contain. See, this is the gospel, Grace. This is good news. Back in verse 13, Solomon declared, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. But he by no means thinks that the physical dimensions of the temple can actually hold all that there is to God. What Solomon means is that God can't be boxed in. God cannot be contained. I mean, really, can God be housed in a temple built by man? No. Solomon says the heavens cannot contain God. So certainly no building structure could hold him. The heavens 
can't even contain God, let alone this temple that Solomon is dedicating. Yet still, Yahweh condescends. God cannot be contained to any space, and yet the beauty of it and the mercy and the grace and the wonder of it all is that he condescends to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So you have the immensity of God. The universe can't contain him. And then the uh, intimacy of God gets joined with that immensity. We see that in verse 28. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. I love this about Solomon's prayer because no sooner have the words describing the immensity and wonder of God fallen off of his lips that Solomon interjects the word yet. Is, the magnific- is God the magnificent, infinitely glorious God that the universe cannot contain? Yes, but he is also the God who hears the cries of mankind. God cannot be contained, but you can attain his presence through prayer. God cannot be fully comprehended ever, but he can be apprehended in prayer. Solomon knows that the Lord doesn't really live in the temple because the entire universe cannot contain God, and yet God descends. God cannot be contained, and yet we can attain his presence Through prayer. He can't be fully comprehended, but he can be apprehended through prayer. He listens to us. He hears our prayers. How crazy is that? The infinitely glorious triune God actually listens to us. It's amazing. I think we've just grown accustomed to this idea. It's staggering. But we've just gotten used to the idea that it doesn't startle us anymore. This is miracle. God hears. God listens. The Bible is full of passages and page after page where we read that the Lord hears our cries. He listens to our prayers and it doesn't stop us in our tracks anymore. We're not flabbergasted by it. We should be. But the reason why it's on page after page of the Bible is because the writers of Scripture never took it for granted. We're not flabbergasted by it, but the authors of Scripture were. That's why they spill so much ink on the idea. They never got over the idea that the God of the universe actually stoops down to listen to their prayers. And so we read verses in verse 28 like this, "...have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea." And we're like, oh yeah, Yahweh listens, yada, yada, yada. But the authors of Scripture are like, oh yeah, Yahweh listens, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. See, prayer has become too domesticated for us. Ralph Davis said prayer is like garbage. He said this, maybe prayer is like garbage. I regard taking out the garbage as part of the daily tedium of life And it is something I leave whenever possible for other household members to do. Of course, I am wrong. Taking out the garbage should be viewed as a daily sacrament. For garbage in itself is a sign of provision. Potato peelings, apple cores, and squash seeds are silent witnesses that our Father is still feeding us. So garbage is not a tedious detail 
but a divine blessing. We can miss that because it is so routine. I guess our problem is that we don't think theologically about garbage. When God listens to our voice, we must never respond with a yawn. We will trivialize prayer whenever we forget the repeated miracle it involves. The gracious condescension of the king of glory who stoops down to listen to our verbs and nouns, our adverbs and questions, our groans and tears. Amazing. God listens to us. Maybe we shouldn't be flippant about prayer. Maybe you would like to join us tonight at 530 in the education building where we pray for just 30 minutes, praying for our church and for our city and for the world. Maybe you would like to come. Maybe the best way I could advertise it is come groan with us. Come moan with us. Come cry with us. I know it's not much of an advertisement, but isn't that what prayer is? Just crying out to God and saying, this is what's breaking my heart. Come talk to Jesus tonight at 530. He'll listen. The infinitely glorious God says, you have my ear, let's talk. The infinitely glorious God says, what's troubling you? Tell me about it. The infinitely glorious God says, what's going on in that little heart of yours? Let's talk. I mean, who ever heard of a God like that? No one in Solomon's day had. The ancient Near East had no concept of a living, faithful, covenant-keeping God who listened intently to the prayers of his people. They would be shocked to learn this truth about Yahweh. And so should we. Solomon believed it, and that's why he prayed. And in his prayer, he also tells us something else that's staggering about the Lord. It's right there in verse 29. Did you catch it when I read it? Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. This is staggering. Do you see it? God's eyes are open day and night. He never sleeps. Never sleeps. Let that sink in. Because there are people here, and if you don't get a solid eight to nine hours of sleep, you are a total mess. I mean, you are like a zombie. You just stumble your way through the day and you look and you function like a zombie if you don't get that solid eight to nine hours. And then there's people like me and Pastor Greg, and we never sleep. We sleep four hours a night, and that's a good night. And every once in a while, I'll actually sleep through the night like eight hours, and I wake up, and you know what I think? It's the new heavens and the new earth. Where's Jesus? Because when I sleep eight hours straight with no little girls interrupting my REM cycle and asking for a glass of water or telling me they had a dream that they were a frog riding a motorcycle, when I get eight hours of sleep, I feel born again, like resurrected body, new heavens and new earth good. So all you heavy sleepers, is that what you feel like every morning? Like totally refreshed and reinvigorated because I'm jealous, like resurrected body kind of refreshed because I feel that maybe one day a year if I'm lucky. We need sleep. We can't survive without it. And the God who listens to our prayers never shuts his eyes. He doesn't need shut eye. His eyes are open day and night to the needs of his people. And so when you pray, you're not dealing with a God who lives on the East Coast and who closed up shop at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and you got to wait until tomorrow to reach him. His eyes are open day and night. 
and his ears are open. He listens. If you're a Bible, Bible verse underliner or highlighter kind of person, you might want to underline or highlight that word listen because it occurs four times in verses 27 to 30. Solomon is tipping you off as to, kind, as to the kind of God Yahweh is. He is a listening God. You may have noticed too the repetition of words like prayer, which is used five times in these verses. Plea, which is used two times. And the word cry, which is used once. All of these words get crammed into this paragraph to let us know that we can cry out to God. We can plead with Him. We can pour our hearts out to Him. Solomon is telling us that, he's telling you, you can just talk to Him. Tell Him what's bothering you. Tell him what's keeping you up at night. Tell him where the brokenness of this world has left you bruised and broken. Just spill your guts. And then in verse 28, the word cry that Solomon uses is the word for lament. It's a groan, lamentation. It's a lament, a cry of sorrow. Solomon is asking Yahweh to listen to his every groan. He's asking the Lord to listen as he has a good cry session. And it's a reminder that every groan becomes an invitation to whisper, Father. And so teenagers that are here and students, as you're trying to make your way through life with everything that you have on your plate and that's going on in your world, you can cry out to God. You can cry out to Jesus. He's listening. Talk to him. Tell him what's troubling you. Little kids that are here, cry out to your Father in heaven. Tell Him what's troubling you. Tell Him what you're scared of. Don't let these truths cease to amaze you. Be shocked. And when you feel like you can't take in any more of God's goodness, because this has all been good news, at least for me anyway, when you feel like you can't take in any more goodness like Solomon, stop, I can't take in any more. Solomon has even more up his sleeve There's that one word there that you find at the end of verse 30. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When you hear, forgive. That ought to stop you in your tracks. That ought to stop you in your tracks because you're a pretty big sinner. I know it. We know it. You know it. You're a pretty big sinner, and so am I. And yet, Jesus hears and forgives. Amazing. That ought to make you so shocked that you choke as you're sipping on your coffee. Like in the morning, (coughs) he forgives me? Shock and awe and being flabbergasted that it's true. When you hear, forgive. Some of the most beautiful words in Scripture If you're looking for a good tattoo, there you go, right on your forearm. When you hear, forgive. And he does. He listens and he forgives. It's incredible. It's good news for sinners like us. Notice the pattern. We sin, we cry, he hears, he forgives. That's pretty much a snapshot of your life and mine. We sin, we cry, he hears, he forgives. That's a snapshot of your life last week. You sin, you cry out to Jesus, he hears you, he forgives you. 
And now, think about the original audience of 1 Kings. They had turned away from the Lord, and they ended up as slaves in exile in Babylon. And how did they hear Solomon's prayer? Were they not to hear it with hope? Were they not to understand that though the Lord had disciplined them and sent them away in exile, still his ears were open to their cries and his eyes were open to their suffering? They were supposed to read or hear a copy of 1 Kings read and conclude that even in their sin, Yahweh was still encouraging them to cry out to him, to plead with him, to pour out their hearts to them. Yahweh was saying to his exiled people, let's talk. Tell me what's going on in that little heart of yours. And it's true for us too. Though we may be drowning in the consequences of our sin, though we may have been disciplined by the Lord, his redeeming, rescuing hand is still there. Though we may, have, we may be buried under shame and guilt, his forgiveness is available. This is who Jesus is, Grace. This is who Jesus is, Christian. He listens, which means he cares. Make that connection. He listens, which means he cares. And he forgives when we get real with him and confess our sins because he has a heart of mercy. The infinitely glorious God that the universe cannot contain has a heart of mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Every groan of shame, every groan of guilt is welcomed by a caring father. Let's close with something that Solomon's dad, King David, said from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Hear this. It's 100% gospel truth. Just open your hands right now and receive it as I read it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Those seven words are also some of the sweetest words in the Bible. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that could be true of you today if you run to Jesus and you cry out to him and you repent, turn away from living for you, and you turn to him by faith. And I know it's true for many of us here today. These words are true for many of us. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. How in the world do you respond to a God like that? You worship him. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so good to us, that you have a heart of mercy, and you don't give us what we deserve. You gave Jesus what we deserved on the cross where he bore your wrath for our sins and you give us his righteousness his perfect sinless life what a glorious exchange as Martin Luther called it and we thank you for that 
How do we respond to a God like you who has such a big heart of mercy? We just want to worship you. We just want to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.